This is Franz. Welcome to lesson number five. And in this lesson, we're going to be covering insurance law. This is the final sample lesson you're going to be getting for these five sample lessons you've had a chance to listen to. I hope you found these lessons useful. I hope you enjoy learning through the audio format. And if these have been valuable to you. Please consider buying the full series of lessons, which are 30 individual recordings. A total of 11 hours, 45 minutes of audio instruction. That's available at theinsuranceexampodcast.com. Now let's get on to lesson number five. This lesson is approximately 34 minutes in length. Welcome to this lesson entitled Insurance Law. In this lesson, we're going to talk about some of the other regulations that govern insurance, some of the other ways at the state or federal level that insurance has limitations placed on it. So let's go ahead and just jump right in. The first thing I want to talk about is a little bit about license regulation, about who can get an insurance license and how that's regulated. Among other things that the state regulates with insurance, they also regulate who can sell insurance and who may not sell insurance. Typically, anyone who receives a commission for selling insurance requires a license. Most states allow reciprocity. Now, that's just a word that means that they will honor licenses from other states. You might have to do some paperwork, but typically you're not going to have to start all over again if you sell insurance in one state and are licensed and want to move and sell insurance in another state. Those who do move to another state have 30 days to fill out a change of address form with the state. So you do have to inform the state insurance commissioner that you have moved there and that your new state of residence has changed. But you don't have to start all over again. All those applying for licensure must pass a written exam that tests their knowledge of the regulations and laws of the state that govern insurance including the duties and responsibilities of an insurance agent. Now, many of these are pretty similar from state to state, though there are variations. So that means before you get into the insurance business in a particular state, you need to know the nuances of your state. The only exemption for this is a person holding a license in one state who moves to another state to become a permanent resident. So then you don't have to take the test again. Like I mentioned, there's the reciprocity clause. Now, some states provide temporary licenses for insurance agents, and these typically last about 180 days under the following conditions, such as a surviving spouse of a licensed insurance agent who would like to continue an agent's work after his or her death or disability. So let's say it's a husband and wife, the husband sells insurance, the husband dies or is permanently disabled and the wife wants to continue his business so that they still have that same stream of income. The wife can apply for a temporary license so that she can keep the business going while she tries to get a permanent license. So she'd have to go ahead and take the same exam and do the same requirements, but the business doesn't have to stop in the meantime. So it's kind of a, just a stopgap measure and exception to the usual rules. It can also apply when a licensed person appoints someone to keep running the business when he or she joins the military. Say they get deployed with the army, they appoint someone in their stead during the deployment, 
to keep their business running. And so the state grants this person a temporary license, typically 180 days, which is about six months. There are certain responsibilities that a licensed person assumes for maintaining a license. It's not just enough to get a license once, you need to maintain it. And unless you do the things that you need to do to maintain it, you may not be able to keep your license. Now this includes notifying of an address change if that happens. So if you move from one state to another, even within a state, you need to keep a current address on file. And you also have to let the state commissioner know if you're conducting business under anything but your legal name. A licensed person has to have a physical place of business within the state where the majority of his or her transactions take place. And this place has to be easily accessible to the public. There needs to be kind of a, a business front for your insurance agency. There's a building the public can get to that's clearly marked as your building, that, you're, that you sell insurance or you keep your records. That has to be within the state where you're licensed and do most of your business. Another reason for that is that it is a place to keep all of your records of the transactions so that those can be accessible. The state commissioner knows where they are. Your clients know where the records are. It's just that everything is out in the open and public. A person's license to sell insurance typically doesn't expire per se unless it is revoked. And as long as a person participates in continuing education and fills out the appropriate paperwork. So you do you have to do a certain number of tasks in order to maintain your license. Continuing education just means that you maybe attend some other classes, maybe take some online courses, some things to keep your knowledge of the current trends or new laws in insurance the most current as, they, as you possibly can make it. But if you fail to meet some of these requirements, you can also request a waiver if there are extenuating circumstances, such as being called into military service. Say you're in the reserves, you sell insurance, your unit gets called up and you're deployed, and because of that you're not able to meet all the requirements for insurance, you can request an exemption because there have been some extenuating circumstances. A licensed person is sometimes also known as a producer. And a producer is required to be appointed by an insurer as an agent before they can transact business for that insurer. The state must be notified within 15 days of such an appointment. You're an insurance agent. An insurance agency wants to appoint you to sell their insurance. They give you an appointment and then they have to fill out paperwork to, and send it to the state saying that you are now one of their agents. These appointments can also be revoked but that does not mean that the person has necessarily done something worthy of a suspended license. Let's say they don't want you to be their agent anymore, or you don't want to be their agent anymore. That appointment can go away, but it doesn't necessarily mean that's a disciplinary action of any kind. It just means that you might be parting ways even amicably. But in the case that someone has done something bad and that's something that's worthy of suspension, the insurer has 30 days to notify the state. So one of their agents commits fraud or embezzles money, does something that's very bad, that's illegal, they will most likely go ahead and terminate that agent, but then also they notify the state commission about this infraction. And then the state has to decide 
what sort of punishment to pursue for this particular agent. There are many ways that a producer's license can be revoked or that it can be refused to be renewed. And these include providing misleading information on a license application, violating state insurance laws, embezzling money through an insurance business, providing misleading information on an insurance contract, having his or her license revoked by another state or territory, forging documents or signatures, accepting unlicensed insurance business, and failure to pay taxes. Now, these aren't the only things, but these are some of the major things that if you do, you most likely lose your license or you will not be able to renew your license. If a license is revoked or non-renewed for any reason, the producer must receive a written notification that includes the reasons why this action was taken. The producer may be also liable for civil penalties in addition to or instead of the suspension of their license. So just because you lose your insurance license, because you're embezzling money, that's also against civil law, you might also be taken to court for that as well, sued for damages. So just because you lose your license doesn't mean you're also not subject to additional penalties that can occur. The insurance commissioner can issue a cease and desist order, which specifies which actions an agent or insurer should stop immediately. So they think that you're doing something wrong. You get an order from the insurance commissioner that says cease and desist, stop this, or else you're going to be subject to punishment. Breaking this order can bring severe financial penalties and the loss of licensure. So that there you can be fined, you lose your license. So if you receive a cease and desist letter, it's definitely in your best interest to listen carefully to what it is they're telling you not to do. Now, insurance coverage is a legal contract, which means that it can be enforced by the law. If either party tries to break the contract, they can be subject to legal penalties. While insurance contracts are pretty similar to other legal contracts, there are some differences that make them unique, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that later. Insurance law is bound by what's called agency law because insurance is largely conducted by agents. It's not the only way that insurance gets done, but the vast majority of it is agency-based. To be an agent means that you have authority as an individual to act on behalf of a larger company, agency, or person. So it's like being a representative of a larger entity, whatever that is. The person or entity being represented is known as the principal. In the insurance world, the principal is the insurance company. When the customer pays the agent, they are actually paying the principal. So the agent collects the money in behalf of the agency and then delivers the money back to the agency and the agency then provides a commission or some sort of salary depending on what the contract with the agent is. As soon as the principal gives a person the proper forms and materials to transact business, they are presumed to be an agent of the company. So whatever the forms are that people need to fill out in order to get insurance, once the agent has this, they are presumed to be an agent of that particular company. And now there's three kinds of authority that agents can be granted. And these are called express, implied, and apparent. Let me explain a little bit about each of these kinds of authority. 
express authorities, what it sounds like. It's an authority that is specifically spelled out in an agent's contract. It's in there in black and white. The contract says they're allowed to do this, like they're allowed to collect premiums, they're allowed to deliver policies and things like that. So that's an express authority. It's very clear. There's really no room for discussion about those. Then there's what's called an implied authority. It's not specifically spelled out in a contract, but it is implied by generally accepted business practices in the insurance world. For example, sometimes it's actually not spelled out that the agent collects the premium on behalf of the insurer, but that's just typically what's done. That you don't pay the insurance company directly, you pay the agent, and then the agent pays the insurer. So that's something that's a kind of implied authority because that's just how things are usually done. And then finally, we have what's called apparent authority. Now, apparent authority are things that the public sees that makes them assume that the agency has authority from the insurer. Now, these are things like business cards with a company logo on them. So an agent goes out and talks to somebody, gives them the business card. It's got the insurance agency's logo on there. And that's an example of apparent authority. It's something that's kind of a symbol that shows, oh, this person is an agent for this business. Though that's not something that's provided for contractually. When an agent takes money from a customer, it can be held in a trust until it can be lawfully distributed to the other parties that have claim on it, such as the insurance company. An agent who fails to do this is guilty of theft and can be severely punished. So if an agent has other accounts, so their personal banking, checking, and savings accounts, they're not allowed to just mix all of that money in together. They need to hold it in a trust, in a separate account typically, so that it can be divvied up among the people who have an interest in it. Usually some goes to the insurance company, some of it comes back to the agent as a commission. They're not allowed to mix it in with their personal funds. An agent is also known as a fiduciary. That is just someone in whom financial trust is vested. That means that the agent is supposed to act at all times in the best interests of his or her client. The company trusts them to make decisions that are in their best interests and their clients also trust this agent to make decisions that are best for them. That makes them a fiduciary. They're a trusted financial person. This also means that any funds received from insurance premiums must be strictly separate, as we were talking about, that from their personal funds, and they can never be misused. The agent can never use funds that they collect for premiums for personal purposes. There's another term for that that's called commingling, and that is typically illegal by state laws. Because the agent has the insured's best interests at heart, they are required to ask certain questions when helping a client select a policy to make sure they are truly providing the best policy that meets the needs of their client. This can include kinds of questions that determine whether the new policy is replacing another kind of policy. So they say, what kind of coverage did you have before? What kind of coverage are you looking for now? And then they, they talk it over and decide what is the best for everyone.
what they can afford, what kind of insurance they can offer based on the risk factors that they have, and things like that. In an insurance transaction, a customer has certain rights, and it's called a waiver if someone gives up a certain right that they have voluntarily. A similar concept is called estoppel, which means that a person who has given up a right can be stopped from reasserting that right if it would be bad for another party. One example is that if an insurer is lenient about how quickly claims are turned over for a long period of time, they cannot suddenly reassert the right by denying a claim because it wasn't turned in promptly. Let's go ahead and talk about some of the responsibilities of agents to their agencies and vice versa. An agent is always supposed to act with the best interests of the agency. We've mentioned that. Their contract will spell out their responsibilities and duties they have in behalf of the principal or the agency. And if an agent does not abide by this contract, the insurer will hold them liable for this breach and punish them, which usually means they, they can revoke their agent status. Or if it's something that the agent has done that is illegal, they can also report them to the state insurance commissioner for other disciplinary action. One of the chief responsibilities of an agent is to keep track of all the property that comes into his or her possession, especially money. Strict records must be kept and the money can't be embezzled or commingled. So you have to say how much you took in, how much you, you've given out. It has to be very strictly kept. An agent also has to make sure that applications for insurance are completely and accurately filled out as much as possible so that the insurance company can accurately decide how to interact with them. The more information that an insurance company has to give their underwriters, the better decisions can be made for everyone. So that's part of the agent's responsibility to make sure they get as much information as they possibly can, that everything is as clear as it is possible to be. An agent must also be completely honest about information that comes into his or her possession. All pertinent information must be passed on to the insurer in a timely fashion, especially when this information can affect insurance decisions. So they can't play dumb and say, oh, I didn't know about that pre-existing condition to the insurer. They have to report everything that they learn in a timely fashion because that's in the best interests of the insurance company. An insurance company wants to know if they're taking on somebody with a higher risk. In that case, they either are going to deny the claim or they're going to charge a higher premium than someone without the risk. So all of that information is extremely pertinent. An agent must also correctly deliver policies and premiums and are responsible for making sure that the insured understands the policies as much as is in their power. So they're not only looking out for their company, they're also looking out for the people that they insure. They're trying to give out as much information as possible, what the limitations are, what the costs are, what's covered, what's not covered, what the premiums are going to be, all of these things. And because agents are only human and are liable to make mistakes, a lot of them purchase what's called errors and omissions insurance, and it's also just known as E and O. This kind of insurance protects those who give professional advice to clients, including insurance agents. This kind of insurance protects these agents against claims that they either, one, provided false information or errors, 
or they left out information, omissions. So it's called errors and omissions. These policies usually have a very high deductible as an incentive to work to reduce the number of errors and omissions. What this doesn't cover is acts of intentional fraud or willfully entering into bad business practices. So these are things that are mistakes. They're, you're trying your hardest, but you still made errors or omissions. This kind of covers the insurance agents. It's kind of like medical malpractice insurance for doctors, where they're really, they're doing their best, but they still get brought to court over something. It doesn't, but it doesn't cover them if they're engaging in criminal activity on purpose. On the other hand, an agency is also required to hold up their end of the contract with an agent. They're required to compensate the agent based on the contract, either a salary or commissions or some combination of the two, and to reimburse the agent for any business-related expenses, such as travel, or for losses incurred while on business that were not the agent's fault. Now I'd like to shift gears a little bit and talk about forming a life or health insurance contract, some of the laws about how that's done, and about the laws governing contracts. Life and health insurance are a little bit different than other kinds of insurance. And this is mainly because the agent alone does not have the authority to bind a contract with a potential client. Bind just means to make it legally binding all by themselves. The agent has a little bit of a different role. They collect the information from the client and then must send it to the insurance company to a person called an underwriter who makes the final decision. So the underwriter is just the person who looks at all of the data that's been collected about the potential insured person and makes a decision whether it's yes, whether it's no, whether it's yes with conditions, yes with a higher premium, yes with a lower premium, things like that. Life insurance policies generally cannot be canceled and have longer term contracts compared to other types of insurance. The availability of life and health insurance are both based on medical questions, which is something that the insurance company is better equipped to handle than just the agents by themselves. Unless the agents have some sort of other training in the medical field, there's just questions they can't answer by themselves. Agencies need to go out and investigate and the opinions of competent medical professionals. So this is different than, say, getting auto insurance. When you go in for auto insurance, they typically just ask a few questions about the make, model, and mileage of the car and whether it's been any accidents. It's a little bit more involved when you're talking about life and health insurance. Now, when talking about making insurance contracts, we need to understand a little bit more about contract law in general. Contract law governs what makes a legal contract. And in order for a contract to be valid, it must contain the following four elements. An agreement, consideration, competent parties, and legal purpose. An agreement is also known as an offer and acceptance. Both parties have to mutually agree to the contract with one party making an offer and the other party accepting the offer. The insurance company makes the offer of coverage and then the potential client says, okay, I accept that. An offer is a proposal that creates a contract if the other party is willing to accept it. 
an insurance company makes an offer when they issue the policy to the customer. The customer can accept the offer by paying the first premium on the policy. Acceptance must be unconditional. So once you've paid that first premium, that's it. You accept everything in the contract and the contract is now legally binding. So that was agreement. That's the first thing you have to have in a legal contract. The second is consideration. And consideration means that the parties exchange something of value. In this case, an insurance contract, the insurance company is giving the promise to pay out claims when a loss occurs and when certain conditions are met. So that's something of value, potential money for the client when they experience a loss. On the other hand, the insured person promises the insurance company to pay the premiums. So that's also something of value. Both parties are receiving something of value. So that's the second thing, consideration. The third is competent parties. Now having competent parties means that both parties have to be legally able to enter into a contract. And that means that those entering into insurance contracts must be of legal age, they can't be minors, and they have to be mentally competent enough to completely understand all of the stipulations of the contract. You can't enter into some, a contract with someone who doesn't understand it, whether they're too young or they have some sort of mental disability. That's also not legal. For a contract to have... So that's the third consideration, competent parties. And finally, legal purpose. And that just means it has to fulfill something spelled out in the law, and it must be not against any other law. So those are the four parts. Agreement, consideration, competent parties, and legal purpose. Now we talked about the parts of a general contract. Let's talk about the parts of an insurance contract specifically. Insurance contracts are pretty complex documents, and so they're always written out. It's not a verbal contract of any kind. Life and health insurance policies always contain four parts. A title page, also known as the policy page, an insuring clause, the conditions, and the exclusions. The policy or title page is typically the first thing you see in a contract. It spells out many of the basic details of the contract, including the name of the insured person, the kind of policy, the amount of the premiums, the dates when the premiums are due, some of the limitations of the policies, and warnings and precautions. It's usually it usually includes the signature of the president of the insurance company as well. So that's the first part, the policy or title page. The second part is the insuring clause, and that appears near the beginning as well. It sets forth the premise of the contract that the insurer will provide coverage in the event of a loss suffered by the insured. So that's kind of just the, the core of it. That's the second part, the insuring clause. Next, we have the conditions. The conditions describe the details of the rights and responsibilities of both sides of the contract. So describes when claims will be paid out, how much will be paid out, just all of kind of the little details that have to go with the contract. So that's the third part, the conditions. The final part are the exclusions. The exclusions spell out what the insurance company will and will not cover. This includes describing 
which risks are not insurable, usually because they are too unpredictable, such as certain disasters and also things like war and dangerous occupations such as professional racing. You're not going to be able to get a typical insurance policy if you're a professional racer just because it's too dangerous. You have to probably get some sort of specialized insurance. There are some parts of insurance contracts that are not usually found in other contracts, and these include the following so terms. Utmost good faith. This is a term that means that both parties believe that the other party is acting in the best interests of the other without an intention to deceive or harm the other. So we say they're acting in utmost good faith. The second term you're going to want to know is adhesion. And that means that only the insurance company sets down the words of the contract. It's not something that both parties draw up. It's just the insurance company. It's called adhesion. The third term is conditional. That means that the contract only comes into play when certain conditions are met, such as when a loss occurs. So it's waiting to be triggered by the loss. That's conditional. The next term is aleatory. That means that the contract depends on an uncertain event. Each party may not give or receive the same value. It all depends on what actually happens. If the insured experiences a great loss and the insurance company pays out a claim, then they make less money. If the insured pays premiums for a long time and never makes a claim, then he makes less money. So it doesn't have to be even. It probably won't be. The next is unilateral. That means that once the insured has paid his premium or her premium, only one party has to do something. In this case, pay out a claim if a particular loss happens. Another term is personal contract. That means that a contract is between a specific individual and a specific company. That means that most insurance policies can't be transferred to another person without the agreement of the insurer. Life insurance, however, is the easiest type to assign to another person. Another term is warranty. This is a statement that a party guarantees is true. If a warranty is broken, that can be the grounds to end a contract. So that's just like a promise. And if it's broken, the contract can be null and void. The next is representation. This is a statement that is believed to be true to the best of a party's knowledge. It's not as quite as binding as a warranty. So those are all just terms that you might see in an insurance contract and what they mean. And there are several ways that a contract can be violated, including the following examples. First is impersonation. Now this is taking on the name or identity of another person in order to deceive or misrepresent information on a contract. Doing so is also called false pretenses. So that makes a contract void. The second is misrepresentation, which is just giving a false statement. Concealment is withholding information, and both of these can violate a contract. This is especially important when material facts are withheld. And that's material facts are information that is vital because that's information that is vital to know before someone takes on a risk. So material information is basically a lot of the information that insurance companies gather in the first place. For example, if someone applies for medical insurance but leaves out a serious pre-existing condition, this is leaving out 
material information. Finally, let's talk about a few legal requirements. When a contract is considered by a legal body, there are five criteria they use in order to interpret a contract. The first is plain language. The courts assume that a contract has been written plainly, which means that the words have their ordinary meanings. They're not used in, unless they're used in some technical capacity. There's, the words are not meant to confuse. The second is called entire contract. The courts look at the intent of the contract as a whole and not just particular parts of a contract to determine what the contract means. The third is interpretation in favor of validity. The courts assume that both parties want the contract to be valid and will try to read it in a way that it is valid over a way that is not valid. The fourth is unclear contract of adhesion. Insurance companies are known as contracts of adhesion, which we talked about a little bit earlier, which means that only one party, in this case the insurer, makes the wording of the contract. This means that when the courts rule on something that is unclear, they usually rule in favor of the customer instead of the insurer because the insurer had the advantage of putting down the wording of the contract in the first place. And fifth, written contracts. That means that the material that is typed or written into a contract takes precedent over that what is printed on the form to begin with. This is because added information, so something that the customer wrote in later, is added specifically from client to client. It's more specifically what that particular client wants. Oral statements made before a contract is written are no longer valid once the contract is written. So if they discuss something orally beforehand, that all goes out the window as soon as the contract is actually signed. Oral statements made afterwards can still maintain some of their validity, but that's kind of up to the courts to decide. A contract that is made void is one that does not have a legal effect because it is missing one of the elements that we previously mentioned. A voidable contract is one that can be ended by either one of the parties if certain conditions exist. So a void contract and a voidable contract are not the same thing. One is a contract that is already not effective anymore. That's the void contract. And a voidable contract is one that can be canceled under certain conditions by either party. For example, if a policyholder stops paying their monthly premium, the insurer has the right to void the contract. So they met a certain condition, the non-payment of the premiums, then they can go ahead and void the contract. And that is all for our lesson on insurance law. Thank you very much for listening.